Welcome to Creepy Crime Podcast, a podcast where two friends tell each other creepy stories. I'm Allie. And I'm Creighton. So Creighton, what have you been up to this week? Um, I have actually just been working. Everything around here is getting started back up since I started to lift the band. I mean, I've been working throughout the band, but, you know, one of those weeks. Fun, fun. How have you been? I've been going more and more stir-crazy, because while the ban is getting lifted, I'm still not back at work, and I have to have a committee meeting soon, so I had to schedule a virtual committee meeting, which I am not excited about. <laughs> I'd much rather do the very first one in person, but right now we can't. Yeah. So. Have you heard any work, uh, any word about when you'll go back to work? We've heard we might go into the voluntary stage not this coming week, but the next week, but we'll hear about it this coming week, possibly. And how has, like, coronavirus affected your research that you were doing? Oh, it's at a standstill. So, like, it hasn't messed anything up. You're just kind of, like, on pause. Yeah, because I was supposed to start a new project, and I had been breeding mice. I was getting all ready. I was starting to do some minor stuff. I was um, working on some stuff with a collaborator in Boston. His lab got shut down before ours did, and so he was like, I'm not going to be in. I can't do anything. Oh, so you weren't in the middle of a project. No, if I'd been in the middle of the project, we would have been allowed to finish it as long as we stayed socially distant and were in as little as possible. Okay, I thought that you had been in the middle when you were breeding mice. And well, so the breeding I mice thought... now has... Because the mice weren't currently in an experiment. Yeah. We couldn't do anything with them. Okay. Fair enough. So, like, once quarantine hit, they were like, if you're not currently, like, with tumor model or whatever going on, then you can't start anything. Right. Which kind of sucks. Oh, oh no, it definitely sucks. Uh, we've had quite a few things around here shut down, but finally my uh, parents' business is opening back up. I saw, I'm so excited when Sarah and I come down for my bachelorette, we'll have to go. Oh yeah, no, I've already talked to my mother. Um, when you come down for your bachelorette, we'll go ahead and get us all a lane, and we can go throw axes. That'll be so much fun. Yeah. So, uh, the only restrictions to them opening up is they still have to abide by social distancing and sanitary rules. So, instead of eight lanes, they now only have four. Yeah, but at least they're open. Because it was kind of a unforeseen, really bad time to open a business. Oh, most definitely. Like, it was a horrible time to open a business, but... As you said, it was unforeseen, so nobody knew that it was a horrible time to open an entertainment business. Yeah, Carl and I were excited because today we, I've been major cabin fever, <laughs> and so today we went to go wander around Greenville, and then we drove out to a brewery, and we sat outside and had lunch, and it was so nice. And we were socially distant from everyone. I know, it sounds lovely. Me and Adam haven't actually been anywhere but um, Walmart in the past month. Well, if you get a chance, go to Old Navy. They're having a huge ass sale. Are they? Yes. So, like... Which, I have a, I have a question mm -hmm. for you, Allie. When is Old Navy not having a huge ass sale? 
Oh no, it's bigger than normal. Like, so everything is 40% off everything, including Ooh. clearance. So if it's already clearance, it's another 40% off. And then because you couldn't use your old Navy cash because it would have been when they were shut down. Yeah. Everyone automatically gets $10 off too. Ooh. Okay. You see, I love Old Navy. I really do. It's not the fashion. It's not the style. It's the fact that there's always something like a discount going on, and I'm a cheap person. Okay. We should probably start. Oh, yeah. No, we've already been going for about six minutes and 30 seconds. So, who's first this time? I think that I'm first because I think you went last first. So. Did I? I think so. Because I think that we did. Bri no, I think I went. I think I went second because it was the. Um, why did no one do anything? Oh, that's right. I was thinking it was one before that. No, so you're first this week. Because okay. I did Bridget Cleary first last week. Okay. Let me get everything adjusted. Okay. My main sources were, of course, Wikipedia and um, I think New York Daily News. Yeah. So, on September 7th, 1982, a fire was spotted engulfing a fishing boat docked off the coast of Craig, Alaska. Craig. Sorry. <laughs> I'm guessing that Craig is like a seaside village. Yeah, it's very small. I just thought the name was funny. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like a douchebag. I got it. <laughs> but, like, I'm not familiar with Alaskan geography. Like, where is Craig at? I am not familiar with Alaska geography either. Oh, okay. So, the fire was so massive, other boats could not get near it to try to save any living people aboard the boat. It took two days for them to extinguish the flames. Once the fire was out, the charred remains of people aboard the boat were found. The Cal Thirst family, who owned the fishing vessel, were found, but were so burnt it took dental records to identify them. The husband and wife, who was the wife was pregnant, had been shot several times prior to the fire starting. Their five-year-old daughter was also found in the living quarters with them, along with the husband's cousin, who was his deckmate. Wow. The investigators continued to search the boat and found more remains they assume were the bones of three other crew members ages 18 to 19. And the youngest Calthurst family, four-year-old John's remains were never found, so they assume he was sleeping in the, sleeping in the boat um, where it was hit hardest by the fire and he just was incinerated basically. The autopsies of the remains showed that everyone had been killed before the fire started as none had smoke in their lungs. Hmm. I'm kind of confused though how they were able to see their lungs if their bodies were charred that bad. Well, you know, sometimes you have like a surface char across the skin. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, the skin's job is to protect the inside of your body from infection, from other things. And so occasionally, if the fire doesn't get hot enough to incinerate the body, like a cremation does, mm -hmm. you will just have like a hardened exoskeleton almost. But yeah. the inside will still be attacked 
and still be able to be seen if you can cut through the exterior. So I'm sure that's how they did it. So then, it was also noted that the adults had been drinking and were probably drunk by the blood alcohol levels that they were found to have. Alright. That's never a good mix. So as the remains were found... Yeah. So as the remains were found in so many pieces... Um, many of the pieces were missing, and they were unable to account for everyone on the boat. So, quick question. Was there an explosion, or was there just a fire? It was a massive fire that they couldn't put out because it was burning so hot. So, like, there was no, like, big boom to it? No. Oh, so then it shouldn't have been in pieces. Like, the family shouldn't have been in pieces. They should have been whole charred bodies. Well, so they have the family members, but, like, other crew members that were in different parts of the boat, they only have pieces of. Oh. Huh. That's weird. So. What was the boat carrying? It was a fishing vessel. So just carrying, like, salmon and other things that grow up in the North Pacific? Yeah, I assume so. I assume that salmon grow in the North Pacific. I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. So, there were two crew members that were never identified because of the, like, sporadic pieces that they found. So, they could have been part of those pieces, but they don't know. Right. Um, so it speculated they may have committed the crime. Investigators also determined the fire had been intentionally set. It was noted in a book about the unsolved crime that the husband was a great fisherman, but had a temper and was prone to fighting. Craig is a small town with maybe 600 inhabitants at the time, but people said they saw someone on a skiff driving away from the boat the day of the fire, and he did not look like any of the crew members that were known to be aboard the boat that day. So some of the locals in town identified the man on the skiff as John Peel, a deckhand Calthurst had hired in the past, but was working on a different ship at the time. It was also noted... Peel had dated Calther's sister at some point. Oh. So, like, a family connection. Well, so, Peel had worked for um, the Calther's family on the boat. Yeah. But he'd also dated the husband's sister. Hmm. Also, they were saying all the adults had massive blood alcohol levels, but the one was pregnant, so why would she have a humongous blood alcohol level? Like, it was the 80s. They did know that was bad. That is a good question. I mean, some cultures still drink even when pregnant, but that still seems like a really high, like, level, even for a pregnant woman. Yeah. So with this as the only lead, police focused on Peel, but the mayor of Craig came out saying that there were probably 500 men in Craig matching the description given. Well, that's not good. Basically, dark hair and a beard. Is that the only description given? It's a dark hair and a beard. That was basically the description given because they saw him on a skiff. Well, if that's the only description given, Allie, I may be the murderer and I just don't remember. It may have been before I was born, but now I would match that description. That's what the mayor's saying. (laughs) So the police continued looking at Peel, though, and he became more suspicious once failing a polygraph test. And locals were saying he was fired by Calthurst for drinking and drug abuse. That's a good reason to be fired. Peel was arrested two years after the murders for 
all eight murders. However, the case against him was completely circumstantial, with witnesses stating they saw him aboard the fishing boat. They had sold him gasoline the night... So people were saying, oh, we saw him on the fishing boat. Yeah. Someone else said, oh, I sold him gasoline the night before. And one witness saying his memory was jogged when he heard screaming the night of the murders, but he had thought he was dreaming. But upon taking a nap, he had realized it wasn't a dream. That's dark. Two years later, he's taking a nap and he goes, oh, you know that screaming I heard two years ago? That wasn't a dream. That sounds like a cover-up. I'm not even gonna lie. Because, like, I wake up paranoid from dreams sometimes thinking that they're actually happening and I have to investigate. But if you hear screams in the middle of your dreams and you wake up and go, Ah, just a dream. And then two years later you're taking a nap and go, Wait, I don't sleep like this. That's weird. So Peel's defense was there was no proof of that he had been on board the boat and that it may have been the crew members that had never been recovered. After six months of trial and six days of deliberation, it was called a mistrial due to a split jury. The next trial lasted three months and consisted of three days of deliberation, but Peel was acquitted and filed for wrongful persecution and settled for $900,000. $900,000? Ugh. But it's never been solved. And he was the only one taken to court over it. That's so weird. And it's the largest unsolved mass murder of Alaska. So, in total, how many people died from it? Um, probably eight. So, eight people died from it. Mm-hmm. They had one guy. There's two crew members that were never officially uncovered and recognized. Yes, but they could have been some of the pieces that they recovered. And they just never right. had anything that they could use to identify. But also, the little boy, the youngest of the Calthurst, was also never recovered. So they assumed that he just was incinerated. So this fire burned really hot. So, he could have been incinerated or he could have been kidnapped. Yep. Which, I'm going to be honest, kidnapping doesn't make sense. Because normally if you kidnap somebody... And you're going to kill their whole family. There's still someone you can extort money from. Yeah. So, truth be told, he is probably incinerated. Yeah, I could see that. So. So, where did the fire start? I didn't ever find that out, but it was... So, it wasn't in the living quarters because the family was found there except for the little boy. Right. He wasn't in the living quarters, so they think he was sleeping wherever the fire started. But where was he sleeping if it wasn't in the fam in the living quarters with his family? That is a good question. I don't know. There's a lot of questions that should be answered in there, because technically everybody should have been in the living quarters. Except for maybe some of the crew members. Especially a small boy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you would always have people working. But they were also, like, docked at this point. Well, that doesn't matter. You'd still have people around the clock doing something aboard the ship. And it's kind of like having a security guard at night at a warehouse. Even though nobody's storing things at a warehouse, you still have somebody working 
just to ensure that everything's going well. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird one. It is. It is a weird one. And I've got a weird one this week. Ooh. So, next next episode, we'll probably talk about Eileen Warnos because I did research on her. But I was reminded this week um, by my mother that we have a really, really strange case here in town. Now, mind you, there's no proof that he was a murderer. But he almost was. He almost was. So, right, I am just going to tell you about the Riverman of Tallapoosa County. And as I was telling you before the show, I was having a hard time finding any, like, newspaper sources that talked Mm -hmm. about him. Because I remember at the time that there was. Because when I first heard about this, his victims had been people who I went to high school with. They were two or three grades above me in high school. And so, basically, the story is that here in Alabama, we have a lot of dirt roads. And we have them because there's a lot of older towns that never just became big. So they've never gotten paved through, and now they're pretty much abandoned. And as you ride down the dirt roads, there's no one about. There's a bunch of old houses that are normally not inhabited. Um, There's a bunch of old churches that are called, like, um, home churches. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Yes, I have. Uh, But for any of our viewers that aren't familiar with it, a home church is a church normally that had a congregation that got so small that it could not financially keep going. So they didn't sell the building or the graveyard or anything, but they're only open like once a month, once every six months, something like that for what they call a homecoming service in which a preacher will leave their normal church or a preacher will come out of retirement and go to that church and give a service and their congregation will come back for that one day and then for the rest of the time that the church is not in service they'll go to another church uh i think that's a good description of it is it not Allie? yeah that's pretty good yeah so um basically there is a lot of abandoned churches on Valley Grove Road that are only used once to twice every six months. Um, And also, Valley Grove Road runs along the river. And at some point, the river had cut, like, large banks into the side of the road. And so, there's almost cliffs on the side, even though they're only six or seven feet high. And so, some three guys from my high school were out dirt road riding after a spring uh, rainstorm one night and as they were driving a man jumps off the cliff into the middle of the road and pulls out a gun and uh, faces it at the truck well they stop the truck and the guy like shoots into the truck and makes them get out And he holds them hostage there for close to two and a half hours. And then he runs off into the woods. So, 
Obviously, this isn't something that happens every day in a small town around here. Yeah. And so the guys, after he runs off, they hop back in their truck and they take off. They go and they find the police and they tell them about it. So the police immediately start a search. So they start at the beginning of Valley Grove Road and they go down. Mm -hmm. About halfway down Valley Grove Road is this old church that used to be a home church, but their congregation has died. And so now it's an old abandoned building. And so they got there and the lock that had been on the door was broke. So they go into the church and in the middle there was candles lit. And there's a woman in the middle of the church laying there. So, of course, they arrest her for breaking and entering, and they take her back. Well, it turns out this woman had been the girlfriend Mm -hmm. of the man who had fired the gun into their truck. And so, they start talking to her. They're asking questions about him. Well, that's where the story gets really crazy, because not only... Is she talking about the apocalypse and the end of the world and things like that? But she starts to talk about the trip that her and her partner had been making. And it turns out that he had actually escaped from a prison up north. I, If I remember correctly and the stories are correct, it was Ohio. And he, they had been following the rivers down and like sleeping in riverbeds and abandoned buildings all the way through and so they got to talking about him and she's like oh yeah no he went to prison for like killing a person what yeah yeah no so like obviously it had been considered an accident and now mind you once again I couldn't find the newspaper articles with his name to do more research on him. Mm-hmm. So, this is all coming from local sources. Some of them uh, law enforcement sources. And they were talking about how he had been, him and her had been walking down the rivers for the past three months until they came to the river that goes down through our town. Mm-hmm. And she said... He's probably still out there somewhere. And here's the craziest part. They've never called him. Like, to this day, they still don't know where he's at. They don't know if he went further down the river. If he's still somewhere out in the woods or what. But they have never called this man. When did this happen? This was... I was 13 or 14. So this would have been... 2008-2009 somewhere in there so he's possibly died by now oh yeah no like it's perfectly possible that by 2020 he's died somewhere but like I can remember being so damn scared to go down the dirt roads at night yeah just for the fear of him like I can remember that one night me and my friend Samantha from high school we had been out somewhere. Uh, I think we were out with our friends, Nikki and April. And my mother had offered to take her home. And mm-hmm. Samantha lives at the other end of Valley Grove Road over in Goldfield. I lived in New Sight. 
So, we had started to ride down the dirt roads. And that whole time, after we had heard this story, we had been so paranoid that we made my mother paranoid in the front seat. And my mother was a full-grown woman. <laughs> like, that's how scared we were, that we made a full-grown woman scared that something may happen to us on the dirt roads. Okay, so my question. What did he do when he held them hostage? Like, anything? No, that's the craziest part. He, like, held them hostage to see if they had any food or money or cash or anything like that. He shot through the uh, windshield of their truck. But then, he just ran off. So, I mean, clearly he wasn't out to kill them, because he could have. There wouldn't have been anybody coming through that road at any point. So then what did, like, what did the girlfriend say about all this? Well, the girlfriend said that it was all part of, like, them moving on down the river. Just needing supplies. Because she kept, I mean, they, clearly they arrested her, they charged her, and they put her in jail for a little bit for breaking and entering and things like that. But she maintained the whole time that she was there that they were only trying to live free off the land. So I don't, I don't know if it was like a hippie commune thing. With just the two of them? Or what? Huh? With just the two of them? Yeah. I don't, I don't know, Allie. I, like, I mean, it has left impressions of me to this day. Because I still get paranoid driving at night one time. I was at a, um, like, it was my senior graduation party. And it was actually hosted by, once again, it was Samantha. It's now her mother-in-law, but it was her boyfriend's mother, who had been our 7th, 8th, and ninth grade uh, science teacher. Mm-hmm. And so she hosted a party at her house because she had a pool and everything else. And so I was in Boy Scouts with her son, who was a year older than us. And, of course, they had a barn and all that. So, the local school uh, rock band, which was led by one of our friends, came and played in the barn. And we had a great time at the party. But, you know, it was like 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning at night. And I had to drive back home. And they lived in another town over. And the road to get back to Daviston, which is 15, 20 minutes away from the house, is already 35 minutes long. So, I took off down that road, and it was raining really, really hard. It had started to rain later that night. And as I was coming down the road, there was a man walking down the side of the road at like 12.30 at night, in the middle of nowhere, wearing a rain jacket. And as I passed him, I guess I hit a bump in the road or something. But my whole truck shook, and I was so scared after hearing that story four years earlier that my brain said, oh my god, he's jumped in the back of my truck, he's gonna kill me. I was so scared when I got home. It was probably, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes later when I got home. And I was so scared that I made my dad come out of the house and watch me get out of the truck to make sure nobody jumped me. Oh, I bet your dad was, like, pissed at that. He wasn't, well, he was still awake. He was just in the kitchen waiting on me to get home. (laughs) 
But it was so, like, I mean, A, it was stupid. Because, clearly, nobody's just out to kill me. But B, at the same time, I was so scared. (laughs) (laughs) But no, that is, um, that is a story of the Alabama River Man. They think that he kept going on down the river. And that he is probably either South Alabama or once he reached the ocean, he went somewhere else. Weird. It is weird. It, I like. I mean, anyone who can travel from Ohio to Alabama, following rivers, and just sleeping wherever they can, is a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's a great adventure, but there's a lot of dangerous animals that you could run into doing that. And dangerous people. Like I don't know anybody. Oh, yeah, no, there's a shit ton of dangerous people, but I guess if you're going to pull a gun on people who are just driving down the road, you're the dangerous person. That is very true. That probably doesn't bother you. How do you get a gun? That's a good question. A lot of things about him have never been answered, but I think in the end we found out his name was, uh, it was either Michael or Henry. I can't remember correctly, and neither can anyone else weird i know right like some of the shit that happens in small towns just blows your mind we both had stories that had too many questions oh yeah which i mean that's not the only one like i have some family murders like from my family personally that have some questions and we haven't discussed these yet no we haven't discussed these yet goodness (laughs) Like, does your family have any murders? Not that I know of. Ah. I'm telling you, having murderers in your family is... It's just special. Um, Like, one of the ones was my great-great-uncle. Who took his wife for a boat trip out on the lake. And gave her two love taps to the back of the head with an oar. And they just left her there in the water. She drowned and died, but... I assumed. Yeah. It'd be a different story if she hadn't died. Then it'd just be abuse or battery or something like that. Divorce. Possibly. I know a man who was poisoned twice by his wife, and he knew both times that she had poisoned him, and he still stayed married to her. Did he ever die from her? No, no, he's still living. He finally divorced her after the second time. But it took two times for him to leave her. Goodness. Like, to me, it's kind of like if you shot me once, I'm divorcing you. Yeah. But some people stay around for that second bullet, and I don't understand that. Me either. But, oh well. We're filling out a marriage counseling, like, Um, survey and I feel like one of the questions was what would be a good reason for divorce and you know I never thought about putting if they shot me on there but now I do (laughs) oh or if they poison you like I mean pretty much if they try to kill me in any way I think that's a good reason oh goodness just throwing that out there for you well I'll keep an eye on Adam all right well that's all I have for my story well 
think this is one of our shorter episodes. Oh yeah, well I don't think it's shorter by much, but um, do you want to tell everybody where they can find us? Sure. You can find us on Instagram at creepy underscore crime underscore podcast, or you can email us at creepycrimepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at... Oh, you can find us at uh, Twitter at Crime Creepy. Uh, it's just one of those simple ones, Crime Creepy. And we'll see you guys. Well, we'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Yeah, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye.